You're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a play rating podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We are your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today we are so excited to have Dr. Kate Bassell on the show. Kate is a founder of Heartland Intimacy Design and Training, which offers academic, accessible, and affordable intimacy training entirely online through self-paced asynchronous modules. She's also assistant professor of movement and stage combat at the University of Oklahoma and is an actor combatant with the Society of American Fight Directors. As a researcher, Kate is invested in not only providing the tools of staging intimacy, but providing context as to how and why theatrical intimacy, nudity, and sexual violence needs to be staged. Most recently, she served as the conference intimacy consultant for the Great Plains Theater Commons Play Lab. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be chatting with you all today. Well, we're really excited to dive into intimacy design and all of your work. But before we do that, um, we want to know what is your earliest memory? What's the first thing you remember as a human being? This is so funny. It's actually a dream that I had. Um, So that's kind of an interesting thing that the earliest thing I remember is a dream. Um, So it is a black and white dream. And it's like uh, almost like a flip animation type dream in which there's a little kind of cute outline drawing of a brontosaurus walking (laughs) and um, it's walking in the rhythm of a heartbeat. And so it's just very strange. Like I very vividly remember, like remember this dream of like watching this kind of like 2D animated, like walking brontosaurus in my dream. And it was in the rhythm of a heartbeat. So that was just a very strange thing that that's my earliest memory. I love that. I love that you had a dream in animation too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's. I wish I had an explanation as to why that and why was it in black and white and not in color. And, um, but yeah, and I, I vividly remember like waking up after. Um, so I, I do know that it was wow. indeed a dream and not just like a daydream or something like that. But <laughs> that was it was a dream. So wow. I think I was probably four, three or four. So yeah, I wish I knew why, but that's the one that stuck around. Were you one of those kids who loved dinosaurs? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> I was very lucky. I, um, at that time I was living in Montana and we lived, uh, at the home of the museum of the Rockies, which is home to the largest collection of dinosaur, anything, anywhere. Whoa. Um, so I mean, we were all dinosaur all the time and basically just at the home of every dinosaur, bone, egg, fossil, anything. Um, So yeah, dinosaurs were very, very big. Cool. So how did you go from being that kid who loved dinosaurs to getting into theater? So my parents are partially to blame, Um, (laughs) right? Um, So my mom is a doctor and my dad was a mortgage banker. So they truly are not uh, artistic human beings in and of themselves. Um, and they said, we have this kid. We're going to put them in Montessori preschool because we want them to be exposed to 
the world beyond and think creatively and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they were definitely thinking creatively in terms of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that journey was putting me in a bunch of different summer camps. And so they put me in this theater art summer camp called Equinox. Um, and I just kind of fell in love with it. Um, and, you know, doing little skits of, you know, the, you know, Oklahoma numbers of like the cowboys and the um, cowmen and the farmers should be friends, you know, and doing like numbers <laughs> from Annie, you know, because it's all girls and like two boys and um, us doing little scenes from The Hobbit, playing improv games, right? Um, that that was really what kind of gave me the bug. And then on top of that, they both didn't think that this would do me from the start, but they named me after Catherine Hepburn. So, um, you know, the fact that they are at all surprised that I was creative or artistic, it's like, well, you named me after like one of the greatest actresses of all time because she was confident, (laughs) she was fierce, she wore Mm. pants, right? Um, You know, that that was kind of, they, they aspired they wanted me to aspire to that kind of level of confidence and being a woman, but also being empowered. Um, so I'm like, well, I mean, duh, they, duh. <laughs> like duh. What, what else did you expect here? So, um, yeah, so my, that was my earliest connection with theater was through summer camp. And then I just kind of kept going back and saying, when am I going to Equinox? When am I doing the, the school round stuff? When am I doing dance class? When am I doing all of this? So, that really, that summer camp was really what tapped me in. They tried to do like a sciencey thing every once in a while, but I was like, "This, I'm not really interested in the bugs. Thank you very much, but um, <laughs> I would like to go back to theater camp, please. Thank you very much." So, were you more drawn into acting in theater? Initially, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Initially, I was mm-hmm. more drawn into acting, and um. Because, I mean, that was, I was a big personality. Um, I was an only child. So, I mean, I got all of the attention all the time. And I also had to entertain myself. So I think I was a little bit actor director without even realizing it of like making shows with Barbie dolls in my, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was having to to play games by myself. Um, I would often, you know, when my friends would come over, I would make shows in the basement and then force my mom to come down with the little camcorder and have her record little plays that my (laughs) friends and I put together. Um, And, you know, at the end we would play, I don't even know if you remember this band, uh, you know, Cleopatra, um, that there was this like kind of girl group before girl groups were a thing and we like did a (laughs) dance number to Cleopatra coming at you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, there were moments like that. I had Care Bears Nutcracker um, and I would, you know, dance around in the living room to the music. Um, They also gave me the Cats DVD or Cats VHS it was, I I think, because that was was before DVDs. Um, But they gave me the Cats VHS and I would just like <laughs> dance around the living room while watching cats with Bernadette Peters. Again, like you set me up for failure. You gave me a cat's VHS. Like what else did you expect? That's um, setting you up for success. I, <laughs> I agree with you. Yes, I agree with you that they're setting me up for aspiring for greatness in the theater. But if they're also kind of like, what is this weird theater kid? Where did you come from? <laughs> Like you, you gave me all the tools to make it happen. So don't, 
you only have yourself to blame. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was mainly acting and directing. I dabbled in some backstage stuff. You know, I tried a hand at stage management for a little bit um, for a summer at Interlock and Arts Camp. Mm. Um, and uh, that's actually where I met my husband was at Interlock and Arts Camp. Cool. Um, yeah. And he was um, last chair at trombone and they discovered he was a really great baritone singer so he got roped into baritone singing in the chorus instead Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah so i dabbled in that but really it was mostly acting and and it wasn't until later on in my career that i kind of shifted gears towards more backstage work but acting was really what i enjoyed and the adrenaline rush of kind of being on the stage working on the lines and working on being around other people, working as an ensemble, performing, and then more my senior year of high school into college is where I started to transition more to a backstage role. Okay. And then was your earliest backstage work um, like stage managing or design or how did you um, find your way into choreography and into making yeah. stage design? Yeah, so basically the the transition um, started into directing at first. Um, so I directed um, a couple shows um, as an undergrad. I directed a, a show there. Um, and while I was an in undergrad, I was taking stage combat classes and getting certified through the Society of American Fight Directors in stage combat. Um, and I was really interested in violence work and... Um, I was learning from one of the now two, I believe, female fight masters in the society. And yeah, so we're in 2022 and there's only two. That's amazing. Yeah. And um, one of the things that she said to me as we were training is, you know, Kate, you throw a really great punch, but you need to work on your receiving because women are always on the receiving end in theater. Mm. Oh, God, that's so painful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this was, you know, 2011 or so. So this was pre-Wonder Woman. This is pre-Captain Marvel. Like, we had no female superheroes yet, really, um, uh, on the, you know, major blockbuster screen. And that just gutted me of, like, what do you mean I have this, inc- like, I have a good skill and I'm never really going to get the opportunity to use it or perform mm. it simply because the American theater is ass backwards, right? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So when I got to my master's program, I was determined to find plays in which women enacted acts of violence on stage. Mm. So that's where I kind of started my like research agenda. So as I'm continuing my violence journey, I'm researching plays. I'm trying to find plays in which women perform acts of violence. So I'm reading uh, Fornes. I'm reading Susan Laurie Parks, right? I'm reading all of these works, trying to find these moments. Um, Meanwhile, I'm also auditioning for some of the shows that we're doing as part of the season. And I am cast as an understudy in a new work. Um, One of the things that my master's program did is we did a lot of new play development. And um, whatever shows that were being read, um, one of the shows would be selected the next year um, to be fully produced. And this particular play was challenging in the sense that 
there were several moments of intimacy within the play. So now we're in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and I was understudying for a role in which the actress playing the role um, was receiving oral sex downstage center. Mm. So staging wow. wise, that's a challenge. Um, and while yeah. she is receiving oral sex, she is giving a monologue about how desperately she wants to end her own life. Oh, God. And then, Jeez. yep. Yeah, a new play development. Um, and, <laughs> right? Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's tough. Um, and as she climaxes, she then bursts into tears. Oh, no. So, oh, wow. um, this is a lot, right? This is a lot to ask of anybody, um, but especially when the placement is downstage center. Um, so, we're going through the rehearsal process of this and the actors are basically just kind of talking through it. Like it hasn't been staged yet. And the director did what the director knew how to do at the time. And that is not really address it. Mm. And we get to tech week and we're in spacing and he kind of says to the two actors, you two figure it out. Oh, no. Wow. So the two actors are kind of looking at each other, perplexed, like not quite sure what to do. And I'm there. I've, I'm the one in the room that has been doing choreography with a different aspect of the show. Um, and there's also like a live firearm that's being shot in the show and I've been helping with that. Um, and so they both kind of look at me and they're like, well, you do movement stuff. Do you mm -hmm. think maybe you could help us figure this out? And I kind of shrug my shoulders and went, sure. <laughs> um, I'll give it no. a try. And so the three of us kind of stood there on the platform and, 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 tried to figure out a way to stage this moment and we did we figured out a way to stage it all three of us together but one of the things that i realized was oh my god i am so out of my depths here hmm. why don't i have a language why don't i have tools to talk about how to stage this and also why is this coming to me as the understudy of this role right to, to figure mm -hmm. out and like why is no one helping us um so that in 2014 was really kind of the first instance where i went yikes this is not good we need to figure something out here like there needs to be a better way to communicate this there needs to be a language for this there needs to be some sort of protocol because us trying to figure this out during tech which is already a high pressure situation that has limited amounts of time that's not really about the acting at this point right. is not good so mm. that's really kind of how i as many of us did fumbled our way into this work right we all kind of fumbled and stumbled blindly in the dark um trying to figure out what this was because nobody really had a clue. Um, and a lot of the people, you know, who started this work, right, when we were all creating this in the beginning, 
it was a lot of trial and error of trying to figure out, okay, what is the language for this? How do we communicate this? Um, so, so now, right now that it's kind of established and people do see the importance of the work, right. And people do see value of the work. Now we're at the phase with the work that we are able to really polish and refine processes, right? And really start to interrogate the processes and now put science and research and scholarship and theory behind the work that we're doing. So we're not fumbling in the dark and just saying, oh yeah, this is what I tried one time and it worked, right? Like we actually are able to put practice and theory behind the practice um, instead of just saying, you know, I think this might work. This might be an idea. And the fact that it is becoming much more widely accepted, um, a lot of people are, the the language around it is being more widely used. So it's a lot easier for us to work in that way. So that's how I, I fumbled and stumbled my way into intimacy work, which purely by accident, as almost all of us did. Wow. I wonder, can you tell us, knowing everything you know now, how you would handle that scene today? Oh, totally. Um, so today, um, going all the way back to the audition process mm. would have explained to the actors, hey, um, just so y'all know, you're auditioning for this show. This moment exists within the play. Just want you to be aware of it. It's a new play. It might end up staying, might be cut. Who knows, right? Just kind of depends on what happens with the playwright and mm-hmm. their development process of the piece. Um, but I just want you to know that this is something that is very likely to be explored within these two roles. Um, so if you are called back for either of these two roles, I'm going to have a form for you to fill out that just indicates your level of comfortability of the potential mm. of exploring this, right? Not even saying that you are going to do it or not, but just like the potential of even exploring this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, whoever's cast in those roles you know, we would set aside dedicated rehearsal time, right? Not waiting till tech um, yeah. to have these conversations. And up until then, we would be using a placeholder for this moment, just so then that way we know, hey, something's going to happen here. We're going to wait till the actors are off book um, to be able to stage this moment. Um, and once we get to that rehearsal in which we're staging this moment, I'd ask the actors, you know, who do you want in the room? Um do you want this to be an open rehearsal or a closed rehearsal? Do you mm. want your understudies here? Um, do you want the playwright here? Do you want um, any other additional personnel here? Um, how, how much personnel do you want in terms of support? Um, and then, you know, we would go moment by moment and really break down, okay, at this moment, this is when um this is when the masculine character goes under the blanket right and at this moment this is where you'll have to angle your leg on this degree right and Mm. this is where you'll place your head on this right and being really specific in terms of when each individual thing happens um Mm. so then that way it's repeatable right because that's the thing right what i did the first time I created some choreography and sure it was repeatable, but it was also kind of general. Um, So it wasn't specific enough that I could guarantee it would be the exact same every night. Right. That makes sense. So if I can be as specific as possible in terms of on this line, this happens on this line, this happens on this line, this happens. 
and then three beats happen, and then you pull your head out from under the blanket, you seek eye contact with each other. Great. Now we have a set choreography that the stage manager then can watch from the booth and follow along with and make sure that it's happening the exact same way every night, just mm -hmm. like a fight choreography, just like dance choreography, just like any other form of choreography that we can make sure that the actors are staying safe with that process. So it would be a totally different ball game. And then afterwards, I would teach the actors some sort of closure ritual and some sort of de-rolling and debriefing practice to help them recalibrate and be like, hey, that was really tense just now. Let's shake that off, right? Um, and our bodies are asking a lot of each other here. Our brains know that this isn't real, but our bodies don't. Mm. So any emotional feelings or physiological reactions we might have are totally normal. And just know that like, if all of a sudden you think you might be in love with your scene partner this week, it's <laughs> truly because, right? Like your body does not know that this is not real because we only do these actions with people we love. Right. That's so, so important. That and I feel like that that I've never seen that conversation happen in a rehearsal process, and it's it should ha always happen, right? Because we've all seen the dreaded showmance where we're like, oh no, like Romeo and Juliet <laughs> are actually falling in love with each other, right? And like they're both in very committed relationships, and this is not good. We all see the train wreck coming down the tracks, right? We know that this is not a good idea, um, <laughs> because the work boundary and the life boundary is a really, really hard one to break. Um, so, and I know a lot of people who have, you know, gotten married and have wonderful lives, you know, through a showmance. So it's tough, right? And yeah. us in the entertainment industry, we have very limited options in terms of people who understand our lived experience and our lives. But that also isn't an excuse to be like, hey, every scene partner I have, I'm just going to fall in love with, okay? <laughs> like, not, not the same right. thing. I'm wondering, as you're talking about this, is um, if you wanted, if you could share what, how it might be helpful in like, in, um, in a new play development and just mm -hmm. kind of like, how can we, Especially in new play development, I just feel like everything is in process and uh, and a lot of things could change <laughs> in the moment. So I'm so curious of like how um, you would approach a new play. Totally. So depends on, you know, what we're trying to manifest at any given point, right? So if it's something that, hey, I am working on a new piece and... I've written a lot of intimate moments into the piece. Um, I've often served as a consultant where I will like read the script and say, hey, um, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but um, in this scene, you have all of the characters taking their clothes off and then they go answer the door. Are they supposed to put their clothes on again between them answering the, the door or mm. not? Are they naked answering the door? I mean, it's cool if they are, but like, I just, that, that piece of the puzzle hasn't been answered in the stage directions, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of spotting some of those loopholes, right, that might not be closed yet. 
um, or clothed yet, either or. Um, <laughs> so identifying some of those moments. Um, also talking about the logistics of things. Um, so for example, um, one of the plays that I worked on in the new play development process um, was one of the Great Plains shows from 2021, um, What Happened While Hero Was Dead by Megan Brown. Mm. And um, in that process, um, Megan and I worked together um, on the reading version of it, but then we actually had Megan come out and we did a workshop production of it at my university. And in that workshop process, I asked her a lot of questions about the way that she had written her stage directions, because the way that she had written her stage directions, I said, you know, me reading this as an intimacy person, I would read these stage directions if I didn't have you here. And I would say, okay, you want these moments to happen exactly in this order. And you want exactly this moment to happen. So I, basically what I'm asking you is, you know, considering that we're in an Omicron wave, right? We have to wear masks for our show. I'm working with college students here. How much flexibility do I have with these stage directions? And Megan's response was, oh, you don't even have to do it in this order. You can, you can totally like do an interpretation of this if you want. And I said, okay, that's fabulous feedback because I would have taken this literally as an intimacy person. Right. So mm. us being able to have that exchange and that dialogue then opened up the possibilities for Megan to go, okay, I need to revisit this part of the play and figure out a way to communicate to people who produce this play that I'm not in the room with. What is the most important part of storytelling of this part of the play? That yes, it is a series of sexy, sensual moments that Hero is going through in the play, and that it's a revolving door of sexual experiences, but it's also kind of like silly and goofy, and you don't have to take the stage directions literally or in this order. Mm -hmm. So what she ended up doing after our production is she ended up going back in and adding a production note to the beginning of her play. And in this production note, she basically added a caveat that the sex ballets, that's the term that she uses for these moments in the play, are not literal and that you are able to produce them as written or if you wanted to do a puppet play or um, shadows or dances or whatever you wanted, you could really do that with these moments. That the most important thing is kind of keeping the silly goofy spirit of the moment mm. um but that's what was most important for her in that section of the play so us being able to have that dialogue and me going hey no like as an intimacy person if i read these stage directions i would be like okay these are non-negotiables like these are the things that this playwright has clearly indicated to us must happen and in this order so we were able to kind of negotiate. And so then she also added a caveat, like, you also need to hire an intimacy director to do this play, mm. right? But she wrote that into her script, that you cannot do this play without an intimacy person. Um, so in that negotiation process, right, she was able to figure out a way to communicate that there's more freedom in these sections 
been written, which also opens up the possibility for her play to be produced in other places, like beyond just like places that will only explore like very risque kink performances, right? That colleges could easily do this play now because of that added caveat of the performance and production element. Um, So that negotiation process was really, really helpful in terms of helping Megan figure out that part of the journey. Um, In terms of the reading process, if we're doing a staged reading of something, my job is really helpful in terms of helping convey what is unseen or what is unheard. So if there's a moment of connection that happens between two characters that it would be really, really useful for the playwright to see and Mm. see how the audience responds to characters connecting Mm. physically, I can assist in that process in helping translate some of those physical connections to the reading to then help that playwright assess if that response is landing the way they want it to. Yeah, that's um, really so cool. Can you give an example of how you would do that in a reading? Yeah. So um, m- most recently, right, at the most recent Great Plains, um, I worked on Kira Rockwell's Ode to be Pure Again. And there's a moment in the play where um, two of the characters are um, mo- set at a, a a Bible camp, Bible sleepaway camp. And there's a moment in the play where two of the girls are um, kind of sitting on the beach and talking about, you know, drama that's happening with some of the other girls. (laughs) And there's a moment that happens where one asks the other to put sunscreen on her back. Mm. And so she does. She puts some sunscreen on her back. And then the other gal asks her to to put some sunscreen on her face. And when she puts sunscreen on her face, she talks about how cute her nose is. And she's never noticed how cute her nose is before. And there's this kind of like moment of tension there Mm. that's not really indicated in the text, but it's just like a little nod and a wink of like, there might be a little budding queerness here, right? That would be hard to pick up if we didn't actually stage it. Yeah. Um, mm. So that was a moment that when we were going through rehearsals and we hit that scene, I wrote down in my notebook, should we stage the sunscreen scene? Question mark. I looked over at um, the dramaturg. The dramaturg was also writing and the playwright was also writing. And then at our next break, I was like, should we stage the sunscreen scene? And then we all looked, turned our books to each other and we all wrote, should we stage the sunscreen scene? <laughs> so all of us kind of came into agreement, like seeing the sunscreen scene was going to be a pretty important piece for Kira to know if that moment was working or not. And if the the moment um, would be picked up by the audience of like questionable queerness here. Mm-hmm. Um, and funnily enough, some of my students came with me to the conference and I looked over at them right before this moment happened. And one of them almost leapt out of his chair to be like, pointing at the stage of like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew that one was queer, right? Like, like that there was a moment of recognition there of like, yes, okay, I spotted it, right? Um, so it really helped Kira go, okay, perfect, that that made sense now. Um, 
and, and also thinking through some of the moments where there is heavy petting, right? There is this sort of like fantasy sequence, right? Um, where an image, you know, of one of the characters comes to the other and it's supposed to be this seductive fantasy sequence of one of the characters trying to resist it. Um <laughs> And it's a little like seductive saunter over to him and he's trying to resist, he's trying to resist, and then he gives into it, right? Helping see those moments um, help just inform her text a little bit more um, and help the audience kind of visualize some of these moments a little bit more. So um, in that reading stage, it really did help see some of those moments um, come to life. Um, and then conversely... <laughs> For a totally different tone, um, Shannon T.L. Kern's Body and Blood. Um, Former guest on Beckett's Babies. Oh, love, love him. Love him. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he has a scene between two characters in which one has betrayed the other unknowingly. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's an embrace between the two of them that is a little bit like they're clinging to each other for dear life. Mm. And the audience like verbally reacted to this hug between the two characters. Um, and again, right? Like unless we saw it, if we just heard they embrace, mm. would we have known that the audience would have responded to that? So it's helpful in that stage too, to have somebody come in and just help stage some of those moments of what's unheard right? To yeah. help communicate some of those ideas and to help think about, okay, what are the logistics of this? What is the audience not getting that could help tell the story to see if it's working? So that's some of the other pieces I try to help plug in in that play development process that's not influencing or changing the intention of the play, but just helping bring the play to life a little bit more in that process to see what's working and what isn't working. Um, just so then that way the playwright has that additional information. Cool. It sounds like when it comes to intimacy, there's this varying degrees of yes. intimacy. It's not just, oh, like a man, a woman, get ready to go to bed there. <laughs> yeah. Versus like, oh, but like two characters just embracing in a hug. Like there's something that, that I find that's so interesting that um, I think maybe people quick to assume the intimacy is just this, oh, it's just this one obvious thing. Of, yeah. Um, but what you're saying is that there's all these varying degrees that we're looking Absolutely. at carefully. Yeah. yeah, no. So my definition of theatrical intimacy is that there's four categories of it. Um, the first being physical intimacy, and that's, you know, the obvious stuff, right? So kissing, sex acts, um, solo intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, any, any sort of physical communication of bodies touching, right? Mouth to mouth kissing, right? Any sort of thing like that. Um, but there's also emotional intimacy of characters conveying or confessing something, right, that is very secretive or bearing their soul in some way, right? If there's something that they're telling someone for the first time and they're in a state of what we like to call vulnerability, right, communicating that vulnerable emotion or that state of saying, I love you for the first time or 
I've done something horrible and I need to tell you, right? That emotional intimacy can absolutely be part of it. Um, I need to tell you that I murdered someone, right? Like whatever that is, right? That confessional state. Mm -hmm. um, nudity, right? So anytime anyone is naked on stage or partially naked or implied to be naked on stage, right? That's another form. And then I also consider sexual violence to be a form of theatrical intimacy. So, right? And there's varying degrees of that as well. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just a charged atmosphere. Sometimes mm -hmm. it is um, a full, like, violent act. Um, but, you know, a lot of the times people, when they hear theatrical intimacy, they just think it's all pure consensual. But, it, like, a lot of the work I do is in non-consensual acts, right? A lot of the time I do is in sexual violence. Um, so it's so wide, of a net mm -hmm. um, of even thinking about like thinking about you know Sarah thinking about your play um, you know like that's a really vulnerable thing of a teenager right like going through their period right like that's a vulnerable <laughs> thing and like yeah. do we see it right do we see the blood do we not do we ever see the underwear around the ankles right Mm -hmm. Like, those are questions that I would have as an intimacy person, right? Like, when she comes out of the bathroom, like, is she is she wearing a dress or is she wearing pants? And are they down around her waist, right? Or does she just come out and say, like, I had my period, mm -hmm. right? Like, those would be the kind of questions I would be asking you to, to clarify, like, what are the boundaries for that actor, right? And what mm -hmm. are the things that we need to be asking of that actor to be prepared to do? Um, because yeah, so interesting. those are the things that we would just have to consider in terms of what are the things we need to ask the actor to do. So then that way they come in informed. Um, yeah. because the last thing I want to do is surprise anybody. Yeah. I think about, you know, decades ago <laughs> when I was acting and like, yeah. and like all the things that we as young actors were just expected to do and like, Right. Like not make a fuss about it, you know, and and it's just so refreshing to hear how much things have changed. I'm well, wondering. It, is it, Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's it's refreshing to hear how much things have changed, but also not. I mean, I also still not. hear. Yeah, I still hear horror stories from my students. Right. Of like things that happened just a couple years ago of them feeling of them yeah. in exercises of them being forced to kiss each other in class, right? And like that was yeah. the exercise of the day, right? So like, yes, we've moved the needle significantly, but like obviously not significantly enough um, that there's still a lot of bad practices in place. Um, but luckily, you know, I think one of the great things about this particular generation is that they're very vocal in their advocacy. Um, so they are they are very loudly stating when things are wrong yeah um so that has been one of the things i've been i've been noticing and they seem to really latch on to is there any i guess i'm trying to think about how to phrase this question what is the thing you wish actors knew more about intimacy design like is there anything that is like a common misconception um about what is okay and not okay or or the kind of work that you do hmm. i would say 
one, you can always ask if there is a play- person that mm-hmm. will support you, right? You can always ask like, oh, hey, and who's the intimacy person on this project? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can always ask the question. And if they say, oh, we don't have one. Oh, okay. Um, can I ask why? Mm. Mm. Like, that's always a question you can ask. Yeah. Um, Because if they say it's like a budget reason or like, oh, well, we just didn't think we would need one for this show. Oh, really? Can can you say more on that? Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, if I'm an actor and I'm going into a show where I know for a fact that they're like – is a lot of intimacy, right? Those are absolutely questions I would be asking. Um, if it's a new play development process that I'm auditioning for, um, I would absolutely ask if I could see the play in advance if that information isn't available, right? Mm-hmm. I would absolutely say, hey, is there, you know, especially if it's something that's a boundary for me um, as an actor, you know, me saying, hey, you know, I was just wondering if there'd be any chance I could get a chance to read the script before I come in and audition for it. Um, I just want to make sure um, that I'm giving you the best performance I can when I come into the space and that I'm well-informed as an actor um, with the choices I'm making and the material I'm making and things like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that the easy-to-work-with myth is very strong Mm -hmm. um, with the idea that we will be out of work if we don't say yes to everything and if we we have to follow all of the choices and we have to do all of the things. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of possibility and a lot of power in offering the choice of, um, hey, you know, uh, I hear that's the choice you want to make. Can I ask some questions about that? Um, hey, um, I'm really interested in that choice. Um, can we? Can you clarify for me how that's motivated in the text? Right? Like bringing it back to the text or my favorite ultimate get out of jail free card is. <laughs> can I think about that and get back to you? Oh, I love that. I have never, ever in my life heard someone say no to that. Can I think about it and get back to you? Mm -hmm. Because it buys you time. And if you decide, you know what, that's not a mountain I want to die on, right? That's not a hill I want to die on. I'm just, I'll, I'll go with that choice, whatever. But if you can say, can I put a pin in it and get back to you? Can I think about it and get back to you, right? That, that buys you time. Because if they're asking you to do something in the moment that you're not sure about, that is the ultimate, like, the ultimate way to buy time. And if they're insistent that you have to make a decision now, I would really question whether you want to keep working with them. Yeah. Um, so asking that question, right, can, can I put a pin in it and get back to you? Can I think about it and get back to you, right? Those are two really great questions that if you're feeling like you're in a position where you're feeling the pressure to do something that you feel like you're not in control of or you're not in a position of advocacy um, or that there's someone looking out for you, right? That that's kind of your get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, And like I said, I have never, ever heard someone say no to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they do, you don't want to work with them. 
<laughs> That's great. I think you sort of touched on this, but maybe um, if you could just, I'd just love to hear your thoughts of just where you think um, intimacy design and like where it's heading in the future for theater. Um, do you, do you predict that maybe every play will have an intimacy designer of some sort? Um or um, more training, maybe there'll be degrees. Like, I'm so curious just your thoughts on the future. Yeah, I think it's going to end up a little bit like um, how acting methodologies have gone post Stanislavski, right? Like, mm. there's going to be like your like IDC people, your Heartland people, your TIE people, your mm. IPA people, right? Like, there's going to be your different oh, branches and your different flavors, right? Um, of the different organizations that are out there and their differing philosophies. Um, because we don't all agree on how to do this, right? Um, I think there will be, um, there will continue to be evolutions within the field. Um, I think the idea that, you know, what we have right now is what it will still be in 10 years is like totally wrong. Like that, that is, this field is constantly evolving, right? Like what I started doing in 2014 is not at all what I do now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's going to happen is um, there will be a lot more people with the training. So I'm hoping it will be more accessible to people. Mm -hmm. um, right. Which is kind of like my hope with my company, right. Is that I'm really hoping that because I'm, I've priced it where I have, I'm hoping that the accessibility factor is there. Um, so I'm hoping with that accessibility factor that it will be more feasible and more possible um, for people to bring in intimacy folks onto their productions. What I foresee happening is it kind of falling into the same trap as the fight world as, you know, it's considered an additional expense. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to bring it on for the shows that you know, quote unquote, will need it, right? You're only going to bring on an intimacy person if you're going to do How I Learned to Drive, right? You're only going to bring on an intimacy person if you're going to do Take Me Out, right? You're only going to bring on an intimacy person if you're doing those heightened content shows. And then some of the shows that they deem, quote unquote, not as risky or not as intimacy focused right? That those shows aren't going to get that outside support. Mm -hmm. So right. then it's a matter of, and this is a debate within the intimacy world, right? Whether or not it's sufficient to have a director with intimacy training take on that show. So right. can the director wow. then serve both roles as director and intimacy person because technically, right, in the hierarchy, that's somewhat of a conflict of interest. But if it's not as frequent or, you know, quote unquote, intense, does it matter? So these are the challenges and the questions that we're asking in the field right now. Like kind of the same idea of if you're doing a show with one slap in it, 
well, if the director knows how to teach that one stage slap, do you need to hire a fight person for that? Hmm. If you're doing Cinderella and all you need to do is the one kiss at the end, do you need to hire an intimacy person for that? I don't know. I don't have the answers for you. Um, so these are these are the challenges that I think we'll be facing and kind of still falling into that gap, um, which then I think puts the pressure on the affordability factor, right? Because we're considered an extra expense. So then people aren't going to want to pay for it when it's necessary. Right. This is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a challenge. It's really going to be a challenge because even now, um, I've had at least two phone calls this week where I've talked to folks and they've said to me, you know, I'm just afraid we're not going to be able to afford you. Mm -hmm. And I never want that to be a reason for someone to not have an intimacy person on board. Right. Um, that that should, like actor safety should always be first. Yeah. Um, so luckily I'm at an institution, right, that like I have a full-time job, right, that like I have that security that like rewards me for doing this outside work. Mm -hmm. um, but I know not every intimacy person is in that position. Um, so it is, it is, it's a challenge and we're constantly trying to figure out what is a what is a fair rate, right? How much do we charge? How long do we stay? Are we there from beginning to end, right? Um, so yeah, these are tough things that we're reckoning with, but I definitely see a lot more scholarship coming out in the next couple of years that I think will help us refine our practices, um, especially when it comes to trauma-informed work. Um, mm. That I think is something that I think there's a gap big gap in terms of the scholarship right now and the practices that we're doing, um, that the trauma-informed work is not where it should be. Um, and hmm. there are a lot of people with good intentions right now that are inadvertently causing some harm. Um, so it's, it's a work in progress. It's a new field. It's a young field. But um, I definitely don't see this as something that's going to go away. I think this is definitely going to be a new permanent fixture in the entertainment industry. Um, but it is a baby, right? And so yeah. we're, we're definitely still in our toddler years and growing and learning how to walk. So mm. I love that image. We do love ba babies here on Becky's Babies! <laughs> uh, so before you move to Glistens, one mm. fun question we have for you is if you were to have a dinner party and you could invite any three playwrights or theater artists, living or dead, who would you invite? I would invite Afra Bain because I want to know all about her secret spy days. I want to know all about that. And like, I definitely believe she was dabbling in some actress skirts. I know she was. I want to hear all of her dirty <laughs> secrets. Um, I would love to have her, Susan Laurie Parks. Nice. Because I'm just obsessed with her. And I have a signed copy of 
365 days, 365 plays from her. And it's like, you know, one of the three things I would take out in a fire. Do you know what I mean? It's like my dog, (laughs) my phone, and MacBook. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And um, probably Kui Gwen um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for my my radical third option because, um, you know, Vampire Cowboys has really enabled – so many more options for women to perform violence and i'm just so fascinated by his brain and just um you know i'm excited for his new work at oregon shakes and um i you know just his irreverent sense of humor and i feel like the three of them together in this weird conspiracy way would be <laughs> just like this fascinating conversation um, oh, yeah. of like, what are the group. ways that they can upend and like create chaos in this bizarre and beautiful way. So it would probably be those cool. three. <laughs> That's awesome. Nice. Well, we should move on to Glisten, but Kate, this conversation was been amazing i mean like yeah. you did not disappoint <laughs> Yay! <I'm so laughs> this is like everything we're dreaming of of like a podcast episode of like oh my god this is so informative and just so um so necessary to yeah. learn and hear about well so thank you so about. much i mean i yeah i have been looking forward to this conversation so this has been an absolute joy for me too yay all right, so Glistens. Uh, this is part of our show where we kind of just want to highlight something of the week. Um, we are recording this on June 12th, so it won't be released till I think, August. But uh, Glistens, um, it could be – Glistens doesn't have an age, all right? Like, it could last forever. So true. Um, so I'll start first. Uh, my Glisten is um, – I've been growing these succulent plants in one of my uh, – the bedrooms and it's like it's like i can see all the flowers just like blossoming from it and it is so cool it's very weird because they look like aliens like they look like from another species i love it it's kind of creepy but it's like beautiful to see flowers and these are the succulents that um actually came from my bouquet when i got married oh wow i saved them and so they've been growing and there's flowers growing out of them so it's cool to see um that was a year ago. Yeah, it was a year ago. Yeah. Wow. So it's nice to see it living and thriving. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah. Uh, Sam, what's yours? Well, I finally watched Encanto. I know I'm very late oh, to the party. You did? But oh, uh, so time. good. I know. About time. So I really good. enjoyed it. I love a good animated movie. Yeah. That and song. just like weeping the whole t- dos orejitas, yes. just like <laughs> yes. I think that time. song about like that the one of the sisters or the siblings like having anxiety. Mm. Yeah, <gasps> that really touched me. I was like, that one yep. got you. Yeah, that really got me because I'm like, yep, that's exactly how my mind is like eighty percent of the time. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Too. What about you, Kate? What's your glisten? My glisten happened just this morning. I um, I went to a pop-up vintage thrift market. Ooh. And cool. I, I went to it last month. 
and I totally struck out and I didn't get anything. And then this month I was like, okay, I'm determined. I'm going to like bring in all of the good, like the good juju. Like I'm determined. I'm going to find something awesome. And I went with my friend Rachel and we went and I found fabulous, like cropped, like almost kind of MC Hammer pants um, <laughs> that are like camo printed. And I'm like, oh well, gosh. these are coming home with me. And then I found not one, but two blazers. One is hot nice. pink and 100% pure silk. And then the other one is like this rock and roll, like cropped black blazer with like studded um, – like cards, like clubs, diamonds, hearts, like spades <laughs> all the way down the collars and the cuffs and stuff. And I was like, um, maybe I just I did, adopted like this weird like punk Barbie persona of just like hot pink blazer, goth blazer, you know, I love it. So I was like, great. I contributed to not, you know, going to H&M and getting something, you know, that's garbage and gonna fall apart in three months like I thrifted I'm upcycling <laughs> and I got cute new clothes so everybody nice. wins well done I love thrifting it's like one of my favorite things um cool good finds um Kate thank you so much for coming on to Vickett's Babies yeah thank, thank you, you so come back much. soon really, really great talking to you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you both for having me Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. <laughs>